Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Wednesday, October 23rd, 2019. And I'm sorry, I guess we're getting into the bowl of candy early here, because this is our Halloween, our special Halloween edition of the podcast. Yeah, I'm so excited. I want this to be an annual tradition now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But first, before we get to some some spooky, spooky, spooky stories, we should probably start with uh, the news that, that just broke, well, today, didn't it? Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. The, uh, which I'm hoping will be uh, considered a treat for fans of the Peabody Award-winning animated series Adventure Time. Okay. So, refresh my memory, we had the series finale... What was it back on September third of last year? I cannot. Does, does it seem like it was that long ago? I swear, no, it, it feels it, like it, it just, just ended. Not. Yeah, yeah, like fifteen minutes ago. But right. no, it's according to my research, which of course is flawed. Uh, September third, two thousand eighteen. But uh, I think we talked about at that time. This wasn't necessarily the end for Adventure Time. That that there had been. Rumors that, that Pendleton Ward, who actually stepped away from the show in the fifth season, yes, who I grew uh, who I grew up with, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love your stories about what your fifth grade notebook with his drawings on. Yeah, it. They, they look exactly like Adventure Time characters. If I had those, <sighs> if I had those notebooks, I would be a, a rich man or something. Oh <laughs> uh, well, there we go. <laughs> uh, but anyway, supposedly when he stepped away, and that was because. You know, as you hear from showrunners on animated series, you basically have no life when you're, you're working, you know, on a show. So he stepped away, yeah. you know, for a quality of life issue. But there was always this talk that he was working on potentially an Adventure Time movie. So um, that's not what we found out about today, is it? No. Yeah. And the last time I talked to him, he was saying that his movie idea was basically sort of a send up of Disney animated movies um musicals to be exact um and he was writing songs and all this stuff Mm. but that was a few years ago so i have no idea what the status of that movie is but no Mm. what we're getting next year starting next year i should say on hbo max is a series of four hour-long specials which i thought Mm -hmm. was sort of interesting sort of in between an episode and a movie Mm -hmm. although the rocco's modern life quote-unquote movie i think was about that long but yeah yeah, i mean are you are you excited about that i am what i find intriguing though is think about it we just had the news uh earlier this week about you know the studio ghibli uh you know hbo max acquiring the streaming rights to their feature film library and this is an interesting one-two punch you know to to get the adventure time and again that i guess that they're called distant lands to sort of uh, sort of differentiate, I guess, from the, the series. Right. Uh, but, okay, so we, we're supposedly getting two next year. When the other two will drop, you know, will be named later. Right. Um, I Honestly, I, I enjoy, you know, always enjoyed Adventure Time. In fact, just the other day, I came across a, an old clip from the the Ice King storyline, and and um, what is the name of the vampire girl that he basically? Oh, Marceline, the vampire oh, queen. Oh God, yeah the the story of Ice King in human form finding her basically in the rubble and sacrificing his sanity to protect this little girl. 
Uh, you know, it's just that's not the sort of story you expect in a, a children's television show. And it was really kind of heartbreaking and really deepened this this basically comic villain character. So, yeah, I, I, I always enjoyed the stylization and the storytelling. So that, you know, we've got four more hours of the this world headed our way. You know, I, I, I can't wait. It was very interesting in that press release, too, that they actually trumpeted all the sort of animated shows that came out of Adventure Time, um, whether it was Steven Universe or Over the Garden Mm. Wall. It was really, wasn't that interesting? Oh, no, I agree. And in fact, um, didn't I just hear that, what is it, Steven Universe for this final season? uh, What, they changed the title of the show? Yeah, Steven Universe Future. There we go. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I have to admit that, you know, Adventure Time was very fertile soil. Some great shows came out of that. Wasn't it Rebecca Sugar uh, yeah. of Stephen who who actually wrote that great uh, song that that basically ended Adventure Time? Yeah, or? she wrote. She, yeah, she was a writer for a long time on Adventure Time, and she wrote that that final song in the in mm-hmm. the series finale. That was I cannot believe one year ago. That is mm-hmm. just blowing yeah. my mind. And, and speaking of writers, I'm almost embarrassed to say this. But I am so enjoying the Elton John official autobiography. Holt and Company published it just last week on on October 15th. And one of the reasons I'm bringing this up on an animation podcast is because Elton John, <laughs> talking about The Lion King, um, you know, again, you would expect him to be fairly pretentious, but it, it's, it's really funny, straightforward to talk about the film. Uh, In fact, I pulled a couple of quotes out of the book here. It's like, he starts off talking about the movie, but I don't want to sound mystical or or even worse smug, but it's sometimes hard to escape the feeling that life is patting me on the back for getting sober. Ten years after we'd last written a song together, Tim Rice phones me out of the blue and said, ask if, would I be interested in working with him again? Apparently Disney was making their first animated film on an original story rather than existing work, and Tim wanted me involved. I was intrigued that the songs had to tell a story. The plan was we we wouldn't write the usual Broadway-style Disney score, but try to come up with pop songs that kids would like. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of, you know, that kind of amused me, Drew, because, you know, the, the whole notion of, you know, when they brought Howard Ashman and Alan Menken in, you know, Disney. The songs had been so terrible for so long in the Disney films that you know, going back to doing the Broadway music style stuff was what they pointed to as to why Mermaid and Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast broke through. Right. You know, I don't know what you're saying about the Oliver and Company songs, Jim. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, moving on here. Uh, anyway, it, he talks about working in an animated film. It was a strange process. Uh, Tim wrote the same way that Bernie Topland would, uh, did, which was lyrics first. And there was no getting around the fact that I was now writing a song about a warthog that farted a lot. It, admittedly, I thought it was a pretty good song about a warthog who farted a lot. At the risk of sounding big-headed, I'm pretty sure in the in a list of the greatest songs ever written about a warthog who farted a lot, mine would be some up, up where near the top. I mean, this is why I so enjoy this book. You know? <laughs> so, 
Anyway, so they finish the film and Elton John, you know, gets to look at, at it after he comes back from touring. And he's like, I thought the finished film was extraordinary. I'm, I'm not the kind of artist who invites people over to play them my new album. But I love The Lion King so much that I arranged for a couple of private screenings so my friends could see it. And he goes on to say, I was so proud of the whole thing. I, I, I knew we were onto something special, but I could never have predicted it'd be the highest grossing, one of the highest grossing films of all time. Introduced my music to a whole new audience. Uh, Can We F You Feel the Love won an Oscar for Best Song. And, and that year, three of the five nominations in that category came from The Lion King, with one of the songs, Akuna Matata, being the song about the farting warthog. Uh, <laughs> so... You know, what's great about this book is Elton John does get a little bitchy in it, and he talks about how the Lion King soundtrack sold 18 million copies, more than any album I'd ever released except my first greatest hits collection. As an added bonus, it kept Voodoo Lounge by the Rolling Stones out of the number one spot on the music charts in America all throughout the summer of 1994. And he, he, he goes on to say, I tried not to be too delighted when I heard that Keith Richards was furious, grumbling about how their latest album was being beaten by, by some effing cartoon. <laughs> uh, so anyway... He does constantly make fun of himself So, uh, as part of this book. So he goes on to talk about when Disney announced it was turning The Lion King into a stage musical for which Tim and I were asked to write more songs. Uh, I once again demonstrated my uncanny ability to predict exactly what is going not to happen. So I kept telling people that turning an animated film into a stage show was both impossible and doomed to failure. You know, I, I couldn't see it at all. And, you know, but then, of course, goes on to talk about the stage show directed by Julie Taymor, nominated for 11 Tonys, wins six, and becomes the most successful production in the history of Broadway. So what does Elton John know? But here's the story. Again, as soon as I read this, it's like, I, I got to share this with Drew. That this, I, I never heard this story before. And I want to know if while you were at the company, you ever heard a whisper of this. So um, evidently, this happens after The Lion King opens on Broadway. So that's November of 1997. Okay. Uh, all right. So he goes on to say, Disney is absolutely overjoyed with The Lion King's success. So overjoyed that they come to me with a deal. It was for a ridiculous amount of money. They wanted me to develop more films, do TV shows and books. There was even talk about a theme park, which boggled the mind a little. There was just one problem. I'd agreed to make another film with Jeffrey Katzenberg, who had been the chairman of Disney when The Lion King was made, but left a few months after the film was released to then go set up DreamWorks with Spielberg's and Geffen. But Katzenberg hadn't just exited. His leaving Disney prompted one of the great Hollywood wars between executives. Uh, so epic that people, other people have written books about it. And the deal Disney was offering me was exclusive. Uh, it was a particularly exclusive to anything involving Jeffrey, who was now suing Walt Disney Studios for breach of contract and $250 million, which he eventually got. And, and he goes on to say there wasn't anything in writing with, with Jeffrey, but I'd, but I'd given him my word. Katzenberg was one of the people who brought him in to do Lion King in the first place. So I regretfully turned the Disney deal down, but at least the world was spared an Elton John theme park. Had Interesting. You... I'd never heard that before. I mean, okay. when, when was Aida in all of this? Well, Aida, I want to say, tried out. Because that was originally an animated film, right? 
Well, you know, um, they, well, they announced and, it as an animated film at some point. It, they they did, they did, but Aida kept slipping back and forth. And initially, of course, on the heels of as Pocahontas was in the works, the thoughts, well, you know, let, let's look further down the line and maybe do another, you know, story about a strong female. But then, you know, Disney theatrical got a hold of it, and I want to say elaborate, you know. I mean, Nathan actually saw the tryout of uh, Aida when it was done down in Atlanta. I mean, back then it was called Elaborate Lives, The Legend of Aida. Um, Elaborate uh, Lives, The Legend of Aida? Elaborate Lives, yes. Trust me, Google it. Really rolls uh, off the tongue, Jim, let me tell you. (laughs) Well, the other reason that particular production became famous because... All of these other divisions at Disney worked on the show, and Walt Disney Imagineering had actually built the central prop uh, set piece for the thing, which... uh, What? It was this pyramid that could unfold itself into, you know, for one scene it would be a boat, for another scene it would be a throne room, for a third scene it would be a set of stairs that... Uh, you know, the people could come down. The thing is that it it never worked the way it was supposed to. Uh, more often than not, it would stop working in mid show. That the uh, the cast actually had a pet name for it was Sybil, as in you know it, it, the it's multiple, multiple personality. <laughs> there yeah. we go. So well, um, well anyway, I, I as soon as I saw this, I, I made a call to a friend in Imagineering and said Elton John theme park, and he goes, No, 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 no. No, he's 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 got it wrong. He's remembering it wrong. We did approach Elton, uh, and oddly enough, it was after the Rolling Stones turned down Disney's offer to to use their music uh, library, uh, you know, for Rock and Roller Coaster. That evidently Elton was the second one they reached out to, and you know, with the notion, you know, with the notion of could we use your song catalog for Rock and Roller Coaster, and and as we found out, he. He turned the deal down. So, you know, you got to wonder, uh, you know, how far down in the pile was Aerosmith? Because, uh, <laughs> again, you know, that, that's the thing. Lion King opens on Broadway in 97. Rock and Roller Coaster opens at Hollywood Studios in 99. So, and in fact, Disney reveals that, you know, there's a new roller coaster in the works for what was then known as MGM Studios in April of 98. So the timing works. But again, you know, just because he had sort of this handshake deal with Katzenberg, it didn't fly. Though, uh, to, getting back to Elton being a trifle bitchy, um, did you see the the GQ interview this week? Uh, where he talks about how he doesn't like the new Lion King. Yeah. Um, well, Jim, know, if you had done your homework, did you did you watch the new Lion King? I I, I can see it from here, Drew. It okay. is literally, you know, that it's sitting in the pile. Again, if I, I weren't recording a Halloween podcast, I'd have it on tonight. But yeah, he flat out says he thinks that the film is a, a huge disappointment, largely because the soundtrack uh, for the Lion King reboot fell off the charts so quickly. And what was it? He says something effective. Music was such a, a part of the original animated feature, and the music of the current film just doesn't have the same impact. The magic and joy were lost. Uh, and, and then, you know, what, the Lion King at this point has made, what, 1.7 billion worldwide, something like that? Yeah, you know? 
Also, he was included in the the making of the Beyonce album. I think he co-wrote the song Spirit that was the big hit off of that album. So I, I'm not sure what he's so bent out of shape about. Yeah, because this is the thing. He literally says, you know, that he he feels like Favreau, uh, you know, says, I wish I'd been invited to the party more. But the creative vision of this film and its music was different this time around, and I wasn't really welcomed or treated with the same level of respect, which made me incredibly sad. So, you know, he then goes on to say that I'm I'm happy the right spirit for the music lives on in the Lion King stage musical, which is Elton's very subtle way of saying, go buy tickets. But anyway, uh, speaking of of Disney and Cats, uh, when Drew and I get back from this commercial break, we are going to talk about an animated feature that Walt Disney Animation Studios had back in development in 2004-2005 that got canceled for all the wrong reasons. And we're back. Oh, Jim, I wanted to say there's another book that we have to talk about at some point, which is, which is? The Queens of Animation, the untold oh. story of the women who transformed the world of Disney and made cinematic history by Natalia Holt, who is supposed to be great. Have you read it? No, it, it's so funny you say this. I was down at my parents' house uh, just yesterday, and my mother literally comes up to me with a clip out of the uh, newspaper. She had read about that this is coming out. In fact, it was published this week, right, on, yes. on Tuesday, the yep. 22nd, from Little Brown. And it kind of startled me because if you think about it, we have the Mindy Johnson book about, you know, the big coffee table book about the, the women of Disney animation. And there was that uh, children's book. Uh, yeah, that, that was, was sort of an ad- adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. So and, have it's, you and, actually- and a Disney Plus series coming soon, Jim. That's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Um. So have you gotten your hands on this thing? Have no, I haven't. It? It's it's not quite cheap enough for me to pull the trigger on Amazon. So I am waiting. You know, maybe after we get our Patreon set up, I'll be able to there we go. indulge there. in these things. But uh, the ooh, reviews like have been the reviews have been out of this world, and it, apparently it goes all the way up until uh, modern Disney. So I'm I'm really excited to read it. All right, let's let's get into it here. Okay, again, this is our Halloween show, and we yep. did promise. On our last podcast, that we we talk about the Black Cauldron and Frady Cat, but Drew, do we really need to talk about the Black Cauldron? We got to do it, Jim. Uh, we got to do it. I heard you, you talked about on one of your other shows about the, um, you know, the walkthrough in Tokyo with the cool horned king animatronic. I I know, but it just. Uh, I just remember going to see this in in theaters, and more to the point. You know, I mean, face it, Disney acquires the rights to this thing in 71, and for 14 years, there is nothing but hype about I dug up an old interview uh, from 1976 at Disney Studios. John Culhane, the, the, the film historian, is there interviewing the, the gentleman who at that time was seen as the future of Disney animation, the, you know, the absolute rock star, Don Bluth. Right. Yeah, and, you know, they said, all right, you know, this is 1976, so you got Rescuers coming out the following summer, and then for the 1977 holiday season, you got Pete's Dragon. And, in fact, Don, you know, directed all the animation for Pete's Dragon. So John said, okay, so what's exciting you guys? What's coming up next over the horizon? And Don says, 
Right now, enthusiasm for a story called The Black Cauldron is boiling through the studio, and we hope that Disney's new generation of animators and artists can touch people with that story in a way that Walt never dreamed of. So, hey, you know, relatively tiny ego Yeah, here. set the bar real low on that one, yeah. <laughs> and the, the irony is that, you know, Ron Clements, you know, when he got asked about uh, The Black Cauldron, because remember, Ron and John were one of the only people who were standing on the deck of the Titanic and were like, you know, maybe this would be a good time to get into the Basil of Baker Street rowboat. Uh, you know, they left the project. And, you know, when Ron was asked, you know, it said, well, look, that film was supposed to be our Snow White, but we just weren't ready for it. You know, I just, you can't talk about the Black Cauldron, really, uh, without talking about when Don Bluth walked out the door in September of 79 and basically took a third of Disney's animation staff with him. Right. I mean, the studio had bought the rights to the, to the Perdan Chronicles back in 71. And so, you know, at this point, they've been working on and off on this film for eight years. Yeah. And when Bluth walks out the door with literally the best of... The, the next generation of animators. Uh, the film never recovers. I mean, Ron Miller turns around and gives Joe Hale uh, sort of a battlefield promotion and makes him the, the producer of the movie, but Joe's never done anything like this before, and so he's trying to look through all of this this concept art and this test animation and try to figure things out. And at this point, the film doesn't really even have a villain. Right. And so Joe makes the call that, well, you know, let's make the Horn King, who's a minor character who's actually, as I understand it, killed in like the first or second book. Well, that was the thing. Did people, were, was this book series popular? I mean, was it like Lord of the Ringsy back then? Because you never really hear about it talked about since Black Cauldron. Well, you know, the and the irony is that it, it wasn't two and three years ago. Evidently, Disney was circling back, supposedly, on doing the the Ferdinand Chronicles as as live action. Yeah, I mean, they have the they have the rights back. I think, yeah, yeah. And again, face it, in our Disney Plus subscription streaming world, especially on the heels of you know, look what just happened with the Dark Crystal reboot, right? You know, it's sort of like, ooh, you know, maybe this would be the way to actually finally tell that story. But but poor Joe, <laughs> you know, he looks at the Horn King and it's like, well, why is the Horn King the villain? And it's like, well, you know, he's, you know, <laughs> he said, we thought the Horn King would make a good animation character because he has horns sticking out of his head. Uh, so, wow. It's like, <laughs> it's like <laughs> you know, and this is the thing, you know, if you're reading the annual reports from 1980 going forward, uh, you know, again, they keep promising what they can't ever deliver. I mean, they, it's described there as a classic fairy tale combining the most exciting elements of Snow White and Fantasia in a film. It's a film that will one day take its place beside the great animated features. And it's just sort of like, oh, guys, you know, <laughs> rein it in. Be realistic, you know. And then they make the decision to go 70 millimeter, which, you know, now it's it's. You have to work with larger sheets of animation paper. You've got to fill, uh, you know, more screen. And and then the late in the game, Hail Mary, Drew, I swear to God, 
uh, Floyd Norman actually got to see the test of this, and he was talking about. Have you ever heard about the hologram that I they have. wanted to do? Well, I was going to say that you, you know, researching this, you look through, and every year there's another description of what this black cauldron is supposed to be. You know, throughout mm-hmm. the '70s and early '80s, and it's just so funny. But yeah, talk about what that hologram was supposed to be. That again, in a weird sort of doubling back on what we were just talking about with Elaborate Lives, the Aida musical. Uh, so Walt Disney Imagineering had been working on holograms, but with the notion of using them for Epcot? And for what? So, oh, well, that was the thing. You know, it was supposed to be initially featured in the Horizons Pavilion. I mean, you know, the notion of... In fact, I, I want to say in this, the, the cityscape scene at the end... There was also talk about, you know, can we use it as an effect in energy? I mean, again, you know, they had all of these effects that they wanted. That was how they are going to make Epcot stand out. I mean, you know, so that, that's where Smellizer came in and, you know, the initial use of IMAX screens and that sort of thing. So God bless it. God bless it, Jim. Early Epcot. <laughs> Throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. No, that's it exactly. That's it exactly. So what ends up happening is that somebody from Imagineering comes over, sees this this test holograph thing, and and goes back blithering about, oh my God, you've got to come see this. And 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 again, gonna face it, the whole time they're working on the Black Cauldron, the whole notion is that the story point is the reason that the the Black Cauldron is sort of the ultimate weapon is it, you know, you can bring back the dead, you can have this, you know, form this giant army of the undead warriors. And, you know, but the notion is, well, how do we portray that in the movie? How do we make that something that totally startles an audience? And and the notion is, well, what if, you know, suddenly the movie goes 3D, throw a hologram in, and the cauldron, you know, we literally watch an undead warrior step out of the cauldron over the audience. And they dummy up the footage. They set up all of the equipment in what it's the, the on the Disney lot, there's that big theater. Are you doing the Mary Poppins stage or the... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, and and that's the thing. You know, for, for a couple of days, they had it set up and people could go in and they would literally go, you know, they'd run the footage from, uh, you know, the, the Black Cauldron that they'd animated to that point of the of the Horn King starting the spell, conjuring the, the Cauldron Born. And then, you know, literally they'd... Turn off the projector, turn on the hologram producer, and there suddenly is a 3D cauldron. You know, this this undead skeletal warrior steps out and is looming over the audience. And and everyone who saw the footage, Floyd included, lost their minds. It's like, oh my God, it's the most amazing thing they'd ever seen. And are we really going to be able to do that? And it's like, well, well, yeah, if... If the theater owners agreed to to buy this piece of equipment, and and you know suddenly it's fair to sound all over again, Drew. It's it's 1940, and yeah. you know people have to pay all of this dough to to do this. And they, as I understand it, they went out and had uh, conversations with exhibitors. And remember that the that the Black Cauldron debuted. At Radio City Music Hall, uh, you know, in the summer of 85. And, and you know, that was the thing they were really hoping, like, wow, if we could debut this technology there and imagine the size of that screen and the size of that theater, you know, doing, you know, a cauldron born looming over that audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it never happened. 
Radio City at that point was trying to figure out how to keep the lights on. Right. You know that that uh, you know they they were spinning around the bowl themselves at that point. So again, for me, the fact that the film again the, the villain is the guy with the horns on his head. You know, they spent 14 years. They couldn't figure out what the story was. I mean, it's just for me, it it makes me crazy when movies that clearly shouldn't get greenlit go into production. But conversely, things that just look like a, a surefire hit, a solid film, don't get made. And which now brings us to Frady Cat. Well, before we get to Frady Cat, should we talk about Katzenberg's reaction to oh, Black Hole? Yeah. So he sees yeah. he sees it right. He's like coming through the door, and mm-hmm. he doesn't know how animated movies are made, and so he kind of asks to well he asks to to like redo some scenes where they say Jeffrey this is animated, but ultimately he cuts what six minutes of stuff. Well, depending on who you talk to, that that I've heard as low as six, and as high as twelve. Really? Uh, yeah. And what's kind of interesting is if you. Remember, you know, that this film is in production during a time when Disney had created a separate unit at the company that would sell animation cells. Yes. Uh, In fact, I remember when I was managing the Acton Twin Cinema in Massachusetts, in the same plaza where my theater was, there was an art gallery that had the area exclusive on uh, Disney cells. And, you know, I would go over and... You know, just do I really want to spend a hundred bucks? You know, and again, a hundred bucks, right? On you know, from the rescuers, or, or you know, get something from Pete's Dragon or that sort of thing. And and the interesting thing is that there are cells that got out in the retail channels during this period from those cut scenes, and so you you have these incredibly grotesque cauldron-born warriors with skeletal figures with their skin sliding off or, you know, them attacking and killing human warriors. I mean, the the images are out there, uh, but Katzenberg, as you mentioned, you know, just cut them out of the movie. I don't know. Again, you know, we live in this Disney Plus age, and it's like, that stuff's got to be in the vault. <laughs> you know? Let us in there. Let us in yeah. there. Yeah. Anyway, getting back to Freddy Cat. Yeah, I, I think both you and I have a love for this particular project. It's really the Disney feature that if you're a film fan, especially a, a fan of the, the work of Alfred Hitchcock, that would have been the, this wonderful Venn diagram of a movie where it uh, not only made you know, affectionately spoofed classic Hitchcock movies like North by Northwest and Suspicion and Rear Window and that sort of thing. But it also was supposed to have been uh, the very first completely CG film that John Musker and Ron Clements uh, made for Disney Studios. Oh, I didn't realize it was supposed to be CG. Maybe since I've only seen, you know, the artwork that I just assumed that it was going to be 2D. But I didn't know that it was going to be 3D. Yeah, well, in fact, that what's interesting for me is that, that I remember being at uh, SIGGRAPH in 2004, and this was right after David Staten had shut down Walt Disney Animation Studios Florida, and yeah, 258 artists and animators let go, uh, largely because 
this is when Michael Eisner and Steve Jobs are not getting along. In fact, Disney shuts down uh, Florida Studio uh, January 12th. And January 30th of, of 2004, uh, that's when Jobs announces that, you know, he's breaking off negotiations with Disney and that when they deliver cars in June of 2006, Pixar is officially a free agent, you know, and it's, it's going to go basically, you know, going to get into business with somebody else and emerge as Disney's direct competition. And Eisner immediately pivots to David Staten. What's interesting is that he came in to run Disney Animation Studios in January of 2003, and this was right after November of uh, 2002. That's when Treasure Planet came out. Right. And and that's the thing. I'm, I'm one of those handful of people who love Treasure Planet. Uh, you know, I think Ron and John did a fine job with this film, but for some reason it, it just did not connect with audiences that year, and... Uh, studio spent $140 million to make the thing, and during its entire domestic rent, it only makes $35, or <laughs> $35 million. $35, that's right. That $35 million, yeah. They found that money in the couch cushions. <laughs> um, and so Staten comes through the door. He's He's been over at Disney Television Animation, and he comes in as the new president of Walt Disney Feature Animation, and Eisner basically pulls him aside, and it's like, look... We've had a series of films. In fact, the only one in that pile in that time that really made money was uh, Lilo and Stitch, right? Right. Yeah. Which is which is interesting because in the Iger book, he really downplays the success of that movie, which I thought was really interesting. He yeah. calls it a modest hit. He doesn't really engage with how much the character has kind of infiltrated the parks and everything. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you've been hearing the same thing about that's, what, one of the, the next things to be rebooted, right? You know, with, with the, oh, the, yeah. you yeah. Know, the CG stitch, you know, working with a, a, a real live girl from Hawaii. Right. Uh, well, anyway, okay, so uh, Staten comes through the door January 2003, and he's he's got his, his marching orders from Reisner, it's like, Lower headcount, lower cost. You need to write the ship at Disney Feature Animation, and we need potentially to be ready to go into battle against Pixar. And meanwhile, Ron and John, uh, Treasure Planet was a grueling project and ended badly because, well, not just the box office thing, but you, you know the stories about what happened after 9-11 and how both Lilo and Stitch and Treasure Planet had to make, you know, some pretty drastic changes. Again, supposedly it was Eisner's suggestion that uh, there couldn't be any guns or knives in a treasure planet, which makes for an interesting bunch of pirates. Uh, And then, what was it, Lilo and Stitch had to take out that entire plane flying through Honolulu scene. Um, Which did finally make it onto one of the the Blu-rays. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is fascinating. Oh, no, I agree, I agree. Um... But yeah, so here's Musker and Clements, and they're feeling kind of bruised uh, from the whole Treasure Planet experience. And they start talking about, you know, I'd like to have fun making a movie again. And they think back to their very first project, uh, The Great Mouse Detective. And and, and again, you know, they had, you know, the smarts to, to, to get out of working on Black Cauldron while the getting was good. And... 
and you know they're, they're two film buffs. They, you know, they're two guys who grew up watching all of the black and white Universal uh, Sherlock Holmes movies that uh, Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce made. And in fact, that's the weird part. They made twelve of those things in the forties, right? Uh, and so, you know, they were thinking about that film was their tribute to, or, or Basil Baker Street was their tribute to the Universal Sherlock Holmes movies. And that got them talking about other movies that they loved. And some of the films they love are Alfred Hitchcock stuff. And, and out of that kind of grew the conceit for Freddy Cat, which was, wouldn't it be interesting if instead of, say, Cary Grant... You know, as the guy who's who's caught accidentally gets sucked in, into a conspiracy or murder mystery, that sort of thing, or, or Jimmy Stewart or the like. What if it were a house cat? Right. Uh, you know, and it's sort of like, okay. So uh, they start to assemble, cherry pick some, some folks that they've worked with in the past. They get uh, Andreas Deja comes on board to help animate the thing. And which, by the way ties in with, with your thoughts on the project, Drew, that it, it must have at least started out as a hand-drawn project. Yeah. Because uh, Andreas doesn't, you know, I mean, again, Andreas has described CG as it's it's puppetry, it's not animation. Um, right. Well, that was that artwork was at the SIGGRAF you went to, right? With Yeah, yeah, it, it had, was. It had it Freddy was. Cat. American Dog and something. It did. Else, it, right? and, and yeah. Meet the Robinsons and the Robinsons. Rapunzel's Unbraided. Yes. Um, and Hans Bacher comes on as a production designer, likewise Harold Sparrowman. And they get together, you know, relatively clever script. Again, a movie that's designed for film fans. There are all these clever nods to North by Northwest and Rear Window and Vertigo. And in the end, Ron and John felt like they'd really hit, you know, that they got the Venn diagram work and they got a movie that would appeal to kids and families. But at the same time, there were enough smart film jokes that, you know, the, the, the Hitchcock fans would, would get it. And the interesting thing is just down the hall from them, Chris Sanders is working on his follow-up to Lilo and Stitch and which is, as you just mentioned, American Dog, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a kind of a, a road picture type film. But, uh, you know, right from the get go, Chris sees the hands writing on the wall and he's he's definitely making this one as a CG film. Right. Anyway, so we talked about the, the shutdown of uh, the, the Florida Animation Studio. Uh, and which is where Chris worked, you yep. should say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And. You know, and like I said, you know, again, you know, there was, you know, the artwork on display at SIGGRAPH and with Disney, you know, for Disney, very aggressive at the 2004 SIGGRAPH recruiting artists uh, and animators who were, were familiar with CG to come work at Disney because, uh, you know, going forward, this was what they were going to make. And Ron and John at this point kind of realized, like, oh, he really wants this, or David Staten really wants this to be a CG film. And they're like, well, okay. I mean, we've always had CG in our movies. We've clocked, you know, the Big Ben scene, uh, Gearworks and Great Mouse Detective. Uh, what is it? In The Little Mermaid, it was the the ships that Ursula pulled up from the bottom in that staircase scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, what, the first ever Caps colored scene. Uh, is in Little Mermaid. And oh, yeah. 
then uh what is it aladdin you've got the the cave of wonders who disturbs my slumber and you know the 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 chaos scene and the hydra and hercules and then by the time you get to treasure planet you get the boats you got ben uh you've got long john silver's leg and arm so you know they're familiar now so it's just it's not necessarily a hardship to have to do this movie in uh, CG, and in fact, you know, the way they sort of rationalized it was, what, well, look, if we're going to do Hitchcock-like camera tricks, you know, computer animation is the way to go. So, yeah, I mean, they had they had used the deep uh, deep canvas right all through Treasure Planet, so I'm assuming that would have really carried over into this movie because they really they really did want to make it a thriller as much as a comedy, which I that's, think is really that's interesting. It, that's it exactly, and and more to the point, they wanted it set. In a sort of a fog-bound London, you know, to, you know, so the notion is, you know, we, we can do some really interesting stuff here. So, all right, it's 2005. Uh, Ron and John get Freddy Cat up on reels. They begin holding uh, work-in-progress screenings in the studio. And they get really positive reaction from not only folks at the studio, but people, uh, you know, uh, elsewhere around the company. And, and here's the final a uh, logline version of the story. Um, so Oscar is a lazy house cat whose comfortable life turns around when an injured parrot named Rebecca flies into his apartment. Oscar tries to help her, but when his owner Doris enters the room, it looks like Oscar ate the bird. Although innocent, all of the evidence leads to Oscar. In order to get his comfortable life back, Oscar has to prove his innocence and go after Rebecca, who had just flown out the window. And what I I like about this description, of course, is that Rebecca, the parrot character, is a nod to Alfred Hitchcock's 1940 hit, uh, Rebecca. Right. So, uh, Which is being remade by Netflix right now. Is it really? Yeah. Really, Army Hammer's in it, yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Okay, so the interesting thing is, the one person who doesn't seem to be reacting well to this now is David Staten, uh, who, as he's watching this movie, is now getting worried that, you know, uh, what if this is to inside baseball? What if this is the sort of movie that will only play to film fans? And the story that I got told is, you know how they do those sort of post-screening note sessions? And, and you know, and, and I guess Staten at one point turns to everybody in the hall here and goes, does anyone... Will anyone today even remember who Alfred Hitchcock is? Are, are kids in 2009? And by the way, that's when uh, Freddy Cat was slotted to go out into theaters, uh, the holiday 2009. Are, are kids today going to pay good money to see an animated film that pays tribute to an old, fat, dead movie director? Ugh. Yeah. Um, so the other thing that I find fascinating is that there was a, a friend of the studio who was telling me that one of the other things that was kind of pushing Staten to make this decision is evidently he'd gotten research that basically said that, look, audiences, given a choice, prefer to go to animated films about dogs, uh, Lady and the Tramp, 101 Dalmatian, Fox and the Hound, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Whereas if it's a cat story, like, say, Gay Paris or Cats Don't Dance, uh, you know, that just the box office of those movies you know, proves itself, you know. I love that someone brought up gay Paris in any context, <laughs> let alone t- 
Talk about it being an out-of-date reference. Oh, well, my and, God. Well, never mind that. You know, just the whole notion of the Disney had made the Aristocats and relatively, re- well, all right, 1987, you know, had made Oliver and Company. So, but again, you know, that's the thing, you know, that, that that's the beauty of cherry picking research to, you know, when you're looking to get a certain conclusion. Right. Anyways, so Staten in 2005, uh, August of 2005, shuts down for 80 Cat. And the very next month, Musker and Clements resigned for Walt Disney Animation Studios, figuring that, look, current management team doesn't have their back, doesn't seem to respect them as filmmakers anymore. So let's go find someplace else to work. And uh, <laughs> Drew, you'll appreciate this because I had this conversation with Don Hahn at our office in Toluca Lake. You know, the, oh, the, good. The, the, the Bob's big boy? Bob's big boy. So I, I met, you know, Nancy and I met Don there one morning for lunch and uh, we got talking about Freddy Cat. And he literally talked about he was still at Disney at that time. And as Ron and John are going out the door, he's talking about, look, I'm going to put this all this material on a low shelf which means it'll be ready when you guys come back to disney this film will be here and you know as soon as you walk back through the door this is a good movie and we can get right back to work on this thing you know ron and john are out the door at disney for for a day or so when they get a call from john lassiter and it's like hey can you come up to amoryville and they're like oh cool we're gonna get to direct movies at pixar and that's not what happened at all. They go up to the campus there, and they end up in a conference room with, uh, you know, Ed Catmull's there, Pete Doctor, you know, all of these creatives and management types at Pixar, and they proceed to spend the afternoon grilling Ron and John about what's going on at Disney Animation. Uh, you know, tell us about the management team. Tell us about who's working there now. And the meeting ends without a job offer. And and Lassiter is walking Ron and John out to the parking lot and basically stops him and says, look, I know, I know Katzenberg is going to offer you a job at DreamWorks. You know, don't take it. You know, just all I ask is don't right. do anything. Don't sign it with anybody for a couple of months. And, you know, and so they, they fly home and like, what the hell was that all about? And, of course, what, what that was all about is, in fact, it, it's in Iger's book, Ride of a Lifetime. They were already, you know, the backdoor negotiations for Disney to acquire Pixar for $7.4 billion were, was in the works. And, and remember that, that part of this arrangement was that Lasseter was going to take over as a key create or the lead creative at both Disney and Pixar. And so he wanted to know going into the situation, uh, you know, what he was dealing with. And anyway, so that deal gets announced January 25th, uh, 2006. And supposedly Lasseter's very first phone call after uh, he, you know, this news gets broken is to Ron and John and says, you know, come home, all is forgiven. And so Ron and John are like, cool, all right, we're going to get to make Freebie Cat now. And it's like, nope, that's not what happens. John had, as part of, you know, the interviews, you know, related to the Disney acquisition of Pixar, had been asked about, are you, you know, because again, Disney had supposedly stopped making traditionally animated films and and that's actually what's kind of interesting is it was when Lasseter came through the door at Disney that 
traditionally animated films stopped being called traditionally animated films. They then became hand-drawn animated films. You know, to sort of... Uh, cool. Well, you know, just the, the whole notion of that the traditional versus computer somehow made computers seem lesser, whereas hand-drawn and, and computer, it's like, okay, you know, they're equal in status. Um, right, right. But... But John, you know, had had promised that he would bring back Handrun. And who better to take charge of that project than, you know, Ron Clemens and John Musker, you know, the guys who had basically reinvented the Disney Princess film. And since John wanted to sort of stick his flag in the ground and be the, you know, have the, the first traditionally animated film under his watch be... The first Disney film to feature, you know, an African American heroine. Trady Cox. By the, by the way, we got a re- we got a request on social media to do a deep dive into what hap- happened with Princess and the Frog, so we have to do that. Okay. Um, okay. Because especially I, because there's this new podcast about Song of the South. Have you heard about this? No. No. What's going on? Do you know? Do you know the You Must Remember This podcast? Yes. Yes. Of course. Uh, Car- okay. Uh, Karina Longworth. Karina Longworth. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So mm-hmm. her. Her uh, next six episodes, Jim, are all about Song of the South. Really? Yep. Ooh, okay. How uncomfortable does that make Ryan Johnson, who's supposed to make three more movies for Disney, <laughs> feel? <laughs> who she is married to, I should say. Yeah. Oh, I did yes. not know yeah. that. Okay. Yeah, she's married to Ryan, yeah. So wow. anyway. Okay. Uh, the first episode is out. It's fascinating. She only gets one bit of Disney history wrong that mm. I called her out on on Twitter. But um, yeah, it's a really interesting show. So yeah, you gotta check no, it no, out. No, no, I, I love her stuff. I've been listening to her for years. In fact, yeah. I, last year she did that amazing uh, series of shows uh, about Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff. Where was it? Patton Oswalt was the voice of Boris Karloff. I want to say yes, I believe so. Oh no, those are great. No, that, that that's must listening, folks. Go yeah. Go so check anyway, out. Ch- we'll, there'll be a couple more episodes by the next next time we record. So we'll we'll talk about more of it okay. then. But we okay. sh- we should talk about Princess and the Frog. Is all I'm saying. But well, anyway, no, no, yes. no, no. I just because I, that's the thing. I was there in March of 2007 when Lassiter stood on stage. And announced the Frog Princess and announced that, you know, here's our lead character, Maddie, who's the maid in, you know, one of the fine homes of New Orleans. And from the very first day that that project got announced, there was pushback. Right. Uh, you know, and that, that's, again, that's why Tiana became a restaurateur, you know, or somebody with a dream of opening her own restaurant. Because the push, I mean, I remember the whole Maddie is a slave name thing. Yeah, um, now she's now she's got her restaurant on on the cruise ships and other things. And, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, all right. So uh, so we'll so we'll circle back. But uh, no, 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 definitely, definitely. But you know, the but the thing is that that here's Ron and John. Who okay, you know, John Lasseter brought us back to Disney, and sure, we'll take a hit for the team. And all right, you know, they end up producing Princess of the Frog, which comes out in November two thousand nine. Um, what do you know about Mort? Uh, Well, I know it is one of the novels in the Discworld Mm -hmm. series by Terry Pratchett, and that, I think, is what caused its cancellation, right? Is that they couldn't really untangle it from the rights of the sort of bigger rights of the Discworld novels, correct? Well, well, that was the thing. As I understand it, Ron and John had, had settled in on Mort, wanted to do this as their next film at Disney. 
But the thing is, they started before they had the rights. And when Disney went to Terry Pratchett, again, my research here, there are 42 books in the Discworld series. Is is that real? Um, I'm trying to see how many. Yeah, uh, 41. Yeah, is that what you said? 41? Yeah, yeah 41. Um, yeah. And, you know, and that was the thing. Disney was like, it's it's like, I just want to make a sandwich. And it's like, well, you got to buy the whole supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how they ended up, you know, I mean, that they put a full year of effort in. And that they're, in fact, what's interesting is, it's it, you know, we're, we're a couple of years out now, you know, almost nine years out. And what's interesting to me is that every so often you'll see Mort concept art bubble up. Um, you know, they, Yeah, and it's amazing. Looking. It is. It is. Um but you know, uh, you know. Finally, what ends up happening, uh, you know, that that project can't go forward because they can't get the rights. So they they pivot to Moana, which uh, again, the fact that it, you know, from 2010 to 2016, it 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 takes a while to get Moana out the door, and all those years when Maui was the lead character, and yeah, I think I think the he was yeah, it was called something. It was called like Big Maui or something initially. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that a lot of people have pointed to the fact that when you look at, you know, it's directed by Ron and John, but then the very next title is co-directed by Don Hall and Chris Williams. You know, this is Musker and Clements who previously didn't need any help to get a film out the door and it's you know, it just it kind of breaks my heart that, you know, 18 months after uh, Moana's release, John Muska retires. You know, it's just sort of like, this isn't necessarily as much fun as it used to be. And, you know, Ron Clements is still in the building, you know, still doing great work. And, and more to the point, all of the art and the storyboards for Freddy Cat were sent over to the ARL. Uh, and they're in storage there now, Drew. And wouldn't you think... You know, Freddy Cat would be the perfect project for Disney Plus. I mean, the hell, they could go the live action Lady in the Tramp route. They could shoot this thing with real cats and real parrots. Um, what about a limited series? Yeah. Wouldn't that be each one has a cliffhanger? I think that would be great. I think that would be awesome. Okay. And I think it would be great if it was traditionally animated. Sorry, hand drawn animated. Just there think about that. <laughs> now, you see, you. You blew what I was setting up there. I was trying to get Nova work. All right. You know, that, that she, well, she can be a model for one of the characters. Okay. I think. All yeah. right. You know, that's yeah. because again, you, you, you and Katie could fly over to London. You know, they'd have to shoot on location there. And, you know, they, oh, wow. You know, now you're talking, Jim. Okay. Now you're talking. So, I think she's cute enough to be in a movie, but you know. I agree. It's a beautiful dog who, and again, you, she's <laughs> she flies with you tomorrow, right? Yes. Yes. She will be in my, uh, Emotional support animal on the plane, or maybe Katie's emotional support animal on the plane. We'll see where we're sitting on the plane, but uh, yes, you know, yeah. it's, it's ironically enough that's how Nancy describes me these days. <laughs> and it just, it's, it's, it's her emotional support animal. Okay. Anyway, um, so you know, while we're on the plane, are are we going to be doing our our due diligence and and looking at even more Mission Impossible stuff, or what are we? Yeah, we actually got a really big. Uh, we got a confirmation for a really big guest who I can't talk about yet. I think that Dan Z will be very excited. I can say it's a female guest. Ooh. She has ties to J.J. Abrams and one of the Mission Impossibles. 
And we are very excited to have her on the show. So, um, yeah, that's going to be really good. But but right now we still have our, uh, I think we just finished up our interview with the, with Tom Cruise's stunt double, who was really great. And we're just starting work on, we're starting the Scott Chambliss interview, who is a great production designer, mm-hmm. who you know, I'm sure, from the Star Trek movies. And he did Tomorrowland with Brad. And he, you know, he got to build stuff at Disneyland and Walt Disney World, which is amazing. And he did the um, production design for Mission Impossible 3. So he's our first production designer we've had on the show. It's really exciting. He tells some amazing stories. So you're really going to want to tune into that. It's really, really good. So that's starting up, I think, the week that this episode airs. So, and, yeah, and check it out. This is Drew talking about his Light the Fuse podcast. Light so. the Fuse. Yes, you have to listen to it. So definitely um, go check that out, folks. Yes. Uh, over here, we're, we've also got Disney Dish with Lentesta. Uh, oh, we just did today. You're going to love this, Drew. We did a, a podcast about the never-built Africa Pavilion uh, for Epcot. And Len actually went into the Buddy Baker archive at NYU and got the music that he wrote for the attraction. I was curious. Did you get that cleared? Or what? Um, Disney Music is licensing the, uh, the the ability to share this music. So, how much is that costing? That's what I I, I I believe there's at least a kidney involved. You know, okay. I, you know, I, I I I don't ask the questions. I just research the pointless stories. Well, I just um, listened to so, that interview with those two people who live at Disney World, and I was just like, oh my god, yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine that? I get exhausted when I have to leave my house for two and three days. The notion of 365 days of living out of a suitcase and, uh, you know, doing my laundry in the hotel laundry room and, and you know, constant eating at restaurants. It's just sort of like, yeah. no. Well, I mean, I was there for three days last week and it felt like 800. So yeah. I cannot even imagine what that feels like psychologically yeah nuts. anyway nuts okay but we also what do we have the looking at lucasfilm with you know our dan z uh we have our marvelous disney podcast that i do with aaron adams the gentleman who edits a lot of the podcasts here uh we have universal joint with dustin fuse and we have i want that with michelle vido lead who at this moment should be getting off a boat thing headed back to a disney theme park so uh, all right. Anyway, folks, uh, tell you what, if you could do Drew and I a favor here, uh, if you could head over to iTunes and rate and recommend uh, Light Diffuse as well as Fine Tuning, that would be very helpful. And if you really, really, really like what you hear here, if you could head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that keeps us in dog treats. Um, so... Thank I you get, for joining us on this spooky episode. Yes, ooh, you know, that, 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 yeah, ooh. Ooh, you know, uh, you know, just safe travels to Drew, and you know, hopefully, we'll be back. You know, once he gets back uh, yeah. from his travels, we'll be back with a brand new episode of Fine Tuning. Till then, take care.